Yeah, maybe a little higher, Jenny. Thanks. And maybe the sconces too, a little bit. So we usually uh, begin with the chanting like we did tonight, and then there will be a guided meditation. And we'll come back to these same three reflections and probably others as the five weeks go by. I want to just take care of a little housekeeping. Um, Shelly, is she here now? Shelly, the office manager, sent out an email earlier um, to everybody who had signed up. And so that was at 5.30, so probably a number of you didn't check your email, which is fine, but we're looking to have a complete email list so we can send out some readings. I can send out some readings to everybody. So if you didn't sign up, then we need to get your email. And you can just use one of the Post-its and fill out, put out, put your name and your email and give it to me before you leave tonight. That would be good. And tomorrow I'll send out some readings uh, for the class. And uh, the Buddhist studies is a little different for those of you who are new than the other programs at the center. A lot of the programs we offer as a drop-in, but uh, with Buddhist studies, we ask for commitment. Now, that doesn't mean you won't have family obligations or work obligations and have to miss. That's okay. But when you can come to the class, then there's an expectation that people will come to the class. And a particular discipline, it's not enforced, but... Uh, you might find it useful as if you're not coming, then just send an email to me. And I don't, it's not so much about being, you know, I'm being parental and I don't actually need to know why you're not coming. But it, it's, uh, you might find it useful and it's up to you that uh, as a sort of an expression of your commitment to the group. I mean, we could have everyone send it to everybody in the group. But as the group has gotten bigger over the years, that doesn't make sense. So I'm just offering that. If you have a work commitment or a family commitment or you're sick and you're not going to come, just to send an email saying, I can't make it on Monday night. I'll see you next week. And again, the idea is that we're all coming together for these five weeks and we're making a commitment to do our practice and to some degree study either by just listening to what happens on Monday night, but a some of you will pick up some of the materials and study, and all of us will be studying in terms of our actual practice that we do. So we're making this commitment to showing up and studying and then also sharing in appropriate ways with each other. So we have large group discussions, and we'll also have small group discussions every other week. And that's also part of the commitment, you know, that we're doing the practice, and then we're going to share, be honest about how it is for us in our small groups, in the large group when it makes sense. So just keep that in mind. And the other thing about the Buddhist studies, in case you didn't pick this up, is there is a criteria. Partly it's just to manage the size of the group, but also it's uh, our attempt at Common Ground to have programs for people who uh, are clear that this particular training, this we call Buddhist mindfulness practice, is central in their life. So the way we say it in the flyer, in the newsletter, is that 
people, this is a class for people who have a commitment to daily practice and who have done several mindfulness retreats. And if you're wondering if you meet that criteria, you can just check in with me at the end. We'll need some program hosts. Thanks to Julian and others who set up tonight. If anybody would like to get here a little early, make sure the room is set up. You can just volunteer to do one week or two weeks or however number of weeks. And then at the end of the night with friends, make sure everything gets put back and the, and the place gets locked up. And again, you don't have to be the last person in the building. It just means that there's some leader here who's agreed to lock up for you and you've done what you can do. So if you're interested in doing that, you can see me and we'll just uh, find people to cover the four nights that we have left. Any questions about the nuts and bolts? Thanks to Stan, who's been a longtime volunteer recording the talks and getting them up for everybody who missed or just wants to check back on something that was said in the previous week. So we'll get those links to the audio talks, both for the guided meditation and for the talk and discussions that we have. Um, Also, it'd be nice uh, for people who don't have a copy of Sharon Salzberg's book on loving kindness You might want to get yourself a copy. I find it's a very useful reference. I've gone back to it, I bet, a thousand times over the, over many years it's been, or decades now. But, um, but what we could do, I think it's appropriate to scan just the chapter on compassion. So if anybody has a scanner willing to scan that chapter in her book on loving kindness, she has a chapter on compassion, and send me that scan document, and I'll send it out to the group. That way, people who don't have a copy of her book and don't want to get a copy of their book can also do the reading. Um, and I'll, I, I think I have a couple other readings I'll be sending out tomorrow, too. So you can just let me know if you want to do that scanning. So I thought I'd say a few things about compassion, and then uh, I have some reflections we can do together as a way to open up a discussion. So one thing that I think is obvious to all of us, we wouldn't be here otherwise, is that we care about our life. And this is something that's so obvious that we tend not to give it much attention. There's something actually quite uh, powerful in that, not not as a thought, but that actual uh, feeling. You know, it's really an act of compassion. I care about this life. And this is so obvious and universal. And, and, you know, it's interesting, isn't it, when we, like in our bathtub, maybe yours too, we get those, uh, I guess they're centipedes, they get trapped and they can't get out. And it's interesting how seeing a little creature trapped and, uh, to some degree desperate, or maybe that's our projection, but trying to get out how it moves our heart. Any sort of 
vulnerability can, if we're, if we really show up for it, can move our heart. And I think it's just revealing this basic truth, maybe one of the most basic truths, which is, I care about this life. Life cares about life. I mean, it's just in the code. You know, that it's probably not a bad definition of life. Life is that which cares about itself, you know, cares about its well-being, cares about its survival. And then the interesting thing that arises, like I mentioned, is that um, that capacity to care about this life doesn't actually have any boundaries unless we construct them. We have to work at limiting that caring. It's like we do that with bugs, you know. We turn the water on and we wash the bug down the drain maybe. Or maybe we used to do things like that. Or we would squash them. Because I care about this life, but that life, that's it's sort of not in the circle. That's outside of the circle in all the different ways that we do that. You know, I care about my sangha, my community, you know. But if you go to another Buddhist meditation center, you know, sorry. <laughs> it's funny. I, it, I mean, I'm saying it because it's funny, but we do this all the time you know, drawing circles. But we have to work at that. That's not actually natural. And one of the things we'll be doing this month, um, we'll be looking at how that feeling, I care about this life, how that uh, naturally has this expansive quality to it. There's something, I think, from the Tibetan tradition, sort of provocative. But just to, uh, just to open some doors at the beginning of the class about how our heart can be moved by the suffering. And the image is, this traditional image is of a mother with no arms standing you know, on the side of a raging river watching her child be swept away. And, you know, when you have an image like that or any sort of powerful image of loss, I mean, like what happened in Norway. Some of you know about that big news, of course. And I haven't seen any or too many images. Um, But I would imagine just combination of the content, the story, and watching the parents and family members grieving the loss of loss of their family members, it can be powerfully moving. Just like that image of a mother watching her child be swept away. One of the videos that made the rounds, I, th- I guess, on YouTube that somehow I saw um, where they uh, some people had gone out to one of these groups of people out in the Amazon or one of the jungles in South America and uh, not too much contact with uh, 
um, this sort of civilized world or the crazy world. Take your pick. And anyway, in this particular video, um, there, this, uh, these local people are interacting with some scientists, I think, and they're on the side of a river and have been sort of washing something. And uh, the child is caught by one of those big snakes. I'm guessing one of the, like a python or something like that, and is taken away. And, and this is just happens, they just happen to be filming at this time. And they catch the mother and the relatives or the other people there freaking out, of course, because they can't, the child just went under and they see the snake going off and they can't do anything about it. So when we bring images like this to mind, it makes it so poignant like the option we have. We can resist the image or resist the truth that this stuff happens. I mean, this is happening in so many different ways. Loss, the experience of loss is happening. I mean, we couldn't add up right now in this moment how many tragic experiences of loss are happening on this planet, let alone you know what might be happening through the universe. So when we have that image, when we recognize that the powerful experience of loss is everywhere happening right now, and then we recognize as whenever we get close to it, you know, two possibilities, which one is to resist, you know, and there are different ways of resisting. We can resist by distracting ourselves. We can resist by rationalizing it, you know, well, that's just nature. There's so many ways to avoid feeling the feeling, feeling the heart's pain. Because somehow, you know, our habit is, or what we're taught maybe, is that it's dangerous or destructive even to feel that pain. That somehow feeling, like even now, just all it is is, you know, I'm just saying some words, but it evokes something from probably most of us. There's a couple of stories that I've told already. Because we instinctively understand how fragile everything is. <coughs> so whether we're conscious of it or not, we're either resisting that, the pain of that loss, or the pain that whatever we care about can't be solidified in any way. Like the fourth of the five remembrances. I was going to go through them maybe later in the course we'll, go, we'll use them because these remembrances tenderize our heart. They're like a way of getting closer to the universality of loss, of insecurity. And then we get to practice at that edge where there's the tendency to deny or to distract or to resist or to rationalize. And we can see that as seemingly effective as it is in the short term, rationalizing or distracting or whatever, resisting, it actually, we can see it actually causes more, it's an act of violence, actually. It's not useful, ultimately. So then we can explore, well, what's the alternative? Well, the alternative would be to feel, to connect with the feeling of loss or the feeling of tragedy or the feeling of suffering. 
is the pain of loss, the pain of insecurity, actually dangerous? That's the kind of question we can hold through the course. So every time, you know, probably many, many times every day, when we bump up against difficulty in our life, our own difficulty or seeing somebody else with difficulty, and we'll notice some some tendency towards distraction or rationalization, denial, resistance, even cruelty. We even use cruelty to protect ourselves from pain. I see that a lot. You know, when I'm feeling just tight and uncomfortable in my life, I'm mean to people. You know, not necessarily in obvious ways, maybe with win in somewhat obvious ways, but, you know, not in public. But I, I just noticed that kind of impatience and other subtle forms of aggression being acted out when I'm not willing to connect with my own pain for whatever reason there's pain. So we need to hold it as a question because if we don't hold it as a question, our the momentum of our conditioning is going to basically sweep us away saying that, yeah, it is dangerous. It's dangerous to open to insecurity. It's dangerous. You know, it's like when, you know, the sort of archetypal situation when we have a stoplight and there's the person with the sign, you know, homeless or something like that. And then there it is. The whole syndrome gets acted out. Like, do we actually, are we willing to actually connect? Whether or not we actually roll down the window or look at the person, are we willing to connect with our own uncomfortableness in the heart, you know, and what it represents? You know, just that, it's just like a doorway into the very truth that that we're not in control, that we can't make life pretty completely that they're disturbing things. And so then we get we get just another opportunity to see, oh, these are the strategies I'm using for this uncomfortable feeling. How are they working? How's it working? Is it actually delivering what I think that it should be delivering? You know, like denial. Is it really delivering some kind of comfort in any meaningful way or some kind of safety in any meaningful way? Or if we're rationalizing, oh, he, he or she is just going to spend any money on alcohol or drugs. So why bother? So, you know, we're just seeing, like, how does that working for me? And then what's the alternative? You know, maybe we explore, like, being honest. Oh, there's this really uncomfortable tension in the mind and body. Because that's what I think a good definition of compassion is. Compassion is the heart or the mind that is capable of showing up and meeting life as it is. In a way, the world, you know, life is perfectly designed to heal, to release what's bound up. 
But we have to use life appropriately. We have to use our experience appropriately. And, you know, from the Buddhist point of view, using life, using our moment-to-moment experience appropriately means opening to it, being undefended. And then when we're, you know, because it happens to be difficult in this moment or we're seeing something that's difficult in this moment, then we don't get to... uh, second guess it or we don't get to choose you know we only get to open to what's presenting itself in this moment so if it's beautiful and pleasant we get to open to that but when it's not beautiful and pleasant we don't really have any choice either we're going to take up a strategy of closing down or rationalizing or one way or another disconnecting because out of habit we think it leads to some kind of real protection and safety. Or we're on the path that the Buddha taught, which is opening, learning how to more thoroughly open and to then check, is it destructive to open or is it enlivening to open? And that's, again, that's, that's the question we can be looking at. So when we find ourselves where we're in that on that edge where we see the two choices of disconnecting or connecting. So when we disconnect, we can ask, is, is the way of that we're pushing this away or controlling the experience or distracting or denying or rationalizing, is it enlivening or not? Is it enlivening or deadening whatever the mind is doing now? And we can even scan and, and later when we're Um, discussing together, people can share. It would be nice to hear some examples actually of of just different events during the day or the last couple days where you bumped up against some challenging experiences or some challenging internal states or external experiences, things you saw, things you had to deal with, things you heard. And then to reflect on what your response was or your reaction was and was that response or reaction enlivening or deadening? Did it set things more and more free in your mind and body or did it bind things up more and more in your body and mind? And I think this is how we understand compassion. If we just stick with it as some idea like a concept, this is it's good to care about other people, then I don't think it works very well. I mean, it's probably a better idea than other people are not to be trusted, you know. But the, just the idea that it's good to care about other people isn't actually the same as caring about other people or connecting or being able to show up because being able to show up is a very specific skill. It's the skill of not being afraid of that pain. Not believing that that pain is doing harm. That being sensitive is actually a problem. And see, this is what provokes insight. This is what draws insight into the heart, into the mind is when we open to what we think we shouldn't be opening to. Just like ignorance and the perpetuation of ignorance 
is when we avoid opening to whatever's happening because we think it's dangerous or inappropriate to open. That's ignorance. Ignorance, you know, as I'm defining it now at least, is living out the view that the appropriate strategy for life is to be disconnected. I mean, when you say it out loud, it just seems so obviously wrong. But just think about how much of the day, just today, we were acting out that view that the best way through this day, the best way through this life is to somehow not be feeling, not be seeing, hearing, whatever I'm seeing, hearing, or feeling. So we create all kinds of means to get lost. And then when, for whatever reason, we um, you know, are inspired to show up, to open, to be undefended, then we get that opportunity to see, like, does it lead to bad things? Is the heart actually smushed by that pain? Now, I'm not saying that the heart doesn't get smushed sometimes by overwhelming experience. It does. But when we really look at it, is it the pain that smushes the heart or our fear of the pain that smushes the heart? that binds things up. You know, when we look back in our lives, when we have had experiences of being overwhelmed and in a sense backed in a corner, so we didn't have the option to distract or to deny or to rationalize or to, you know, fight back because they just, you know, we were helpless. We were cornered and there we were with this huge loss or this huge terrible thing. And we were traumatized by it. And then the question is, what actually traumatized the mind, the heart? Was it the the loss or the actual sort of external event? Or was it the mind's inability to see and relax with whatever was going on? I think just to hold that as an open question, not to just assume oh, I should be able to be with this. This is from this chapter that I'd like to get out to everybody from Sharon Salzberg's book on loving kindness. She says, Horrifyingly, horrifying, cruel things happen in the world. It is the height of delusion to to deny that these things occur. The question is, how do we respond when we are the recipients of cruelty? Forgiveness obviously does not have to do with denying our suffering or our anger, but with opening to something greater. When we do so, we discover the self-destructiveness of our hatred and at the same time, our extraordinary capacity for love. Whether or not we ever call it forgiveness, to recognize that place of clear seeing, of open-heartedness, is a heroic journey. And this is what I meant uh, when I said that opening provokes insight. I often think of wisdom and compassion as the flip side of the same thing. You know, it's it when we open to how it is, we reveal the heart that can open to how it is. So when things are really difficult around us or in our own experience, 
when we open to that, when we relax in a clear way with that, then by definition, the heart or mind that can be clear and relaxed with this experience is revealed. So whether you want to call that Buddha nature or Nibbana or freedom, freedom is revealed, the fruit of the practice is revealed when the heart, the mind opens to the way it is. Doesn't practice denial, distraction, repression, cruelty, control, rationalization. But it, it, it practices understanding that, oh, it's like this. This is how it is. And then the interesting thing is the heart really feels. You know, a lot of times we think of equanimity and the sort of progress of this path as being like super equanimous, like rising, you know, and there's this deep, uh, pervasive idea in spiritual circles about transcendence, like we transcend the messiness. So I think this is another good thing for us to explore these five weeks, like free the idea and, and our actual experience of freedom and how that relates to a, a more profound sensitivity. There's a wonderful... Uh, line from one of Jack Kornfield's books where he's quoting Trungpa Rinpoche, the well-known and controversial Tibetan teacher who's dead now. He started the Shambhala Centers. And this is um, Trungpa Rinpoche writing, when you awaken your heart, you find to your surprise that your heart is empty. You find that you are looking into outer space. What are you? Who are you? Where is your heart? If you really look, you won't find anything tangible or solid. If you search for the awakened heart, if you put your hand through your rib cage and feel for it, there is nothing there but tenderness. You feel sore and soft. And if you open your eyes to the rest of the world, you feel tremendous sadness. This sadness doesn't come from being mistreated. You don't feel sad because someone has insulted you or because you feel impoverished. Rather, this experience of sadness is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely open, exposed. It is the pure, raw heart. Even if a mosquito lands on it, you feel so touched. It is this, it is this tender heart of a warrior that has the power to heal the world. So, of course, our first you know, place for this work is just working with our own pain, our own, just the, our own uh, bodies being bound up in tension, something really straightforward, something we can directly work with. And to get a sense of when the heart is opening, interested, willing to relax with what appears to be unworkable, what we really would like to be other than what it is, like pain in the body. And when we're falling back into some control strategy, 
and just really not trying to control like whether we're doing this or whether we're doing that, but just notice when we're doing this, when we're involved in some control strategy, just being really interested in how that is for us. What is that setting in motion? Is this what I want? Does this work? Is it working? And then when we're opening and feeling that kind of tenderness, that undefended exposure to our body even, something as simple as that. Oh my God, this is my body, you know, this is what I signed up for? No. But if we just stay there, you know, is it enlivening or not? Is it deadening or enlivening? Is it liberating to relax, to allow the body to be what it is? Is this the way? So before we, before I open it up for discussion, I want to just uh, offer this reflection on the Buddha, you know, as an archetype. So you don't, it doesn't really matter what's true or not true about that. Thanks. But just to open our mind or to, yeah, just to play with an archetype of compassion. One of the things I like from the tradition, the Buddhist tradition, is this idea, you know, that the Buddha is and the arising of a really wise, loving person who can articulate a way toward release for the rest of us, that that arising is is itself a conditioned event. You know, it's not like the Buddha decided to take birth and, you know, teach in a way that would be really useful for everybody. But one way that's talked about in the tradition is that, you know, there needs to be ignorance before a Buddha takes birth, you know. And I kind of like that, that in the illness itself, you know, human ignorance itself, nobody knowing what they're doing, you know, in the civilization, all of us basically running around with our heads cut off, acting in ways that perpetuate more stress. And in an illness itself, in a way, is the seed for the resolution or the unbinding, the untangling of that illness. And so the the birth of a being who can sort of wake up, see what's going on, and share that understanding so that it's useful for other people... You know, just that idea that the naturalness of compassion. So like when we talk about earlier when I was saying that the idea of wanting to be compassionate is one thing. But what I think we should point to or work with in this class is not the desire to be compassionate, but rather the systematic understanding of how compassion arises naturally, organically and unstoppable. It's not like I'm doing it. But when, by definition, when we open to a moment as it actually is, we're revealing the heart of love and wisdom that can open to the moment as it is. And then the compassionate response just arises from that deep connection. Compassion as an action is activity coming out of connection. And cruelty, by definition, is activity coming out of disconnection. 
you know, when somebody goes and shoots a bunch of youth because of whatever reason, you know, that's coming from disconnection. It's not coming from being connected to the way it is. A person has to create a really intense little bubble and then get lost in it. Some idea, you know, and then just really identify with that idea in order to do things like that. And so, you know, in just uh, in terms of myth or legend, you know, the story of the Buddha, an incalculable number of years prior to taking birth as this guy, Siddhartha Gautama, who then became this wise, loving teacher, you know, many, many, you know, there's these amazing stories about how long ago, at another time, in another place, seeing the, recognizing intuitively the goodness of a Buddha, you know, another wise person, long, long time ago, he was inspired to be a Buddha. The intention arose in his mind to become that that sort of natural thread that will someday take birth when we're all running around with our heads cut off in order to realize how to be free, you know, it takes birth. And another um, story I like from the tradition too is that after the Buddha's awakening and uh, and just understanding how subtle, how uh, counterintuitive the practice is, because like I said earlier, like opening to pain, that's counterintuitive. Running from pain, that's instinctual. But to turn toward it, and to realize the transformation that comes from turning toward insecurity, that's counterintuitive. And, and not really, you know, as the story goes, at least not feeling inclined to teach. But partly through some encouragement and partly understanding, there's a phrase in the suttas where the Buddha said something, I'm going to paraphrase, says something like, uh, seeing that people want to be happy just like I want to be happy. And in wanting to be happy, do exactly the opposite of what leads to happiness moved my heart. And this is what we can see. I mean, we see this not so much in terms of our own activity. We see it a lot in our friends and our loved ones, right? We see they just want to be happy, but what they're doing isn't leading to happiness. But, you know, of course, it doesn't often help to tell them that. (laughs) You shouldn't be doing that. Stop. But what we can do is we can recognize something very deep and profound. Oh, everybody wants to be happy. But so much of what we do doesn't lead to happiness. And that can be our real inspiration in this class and then outward from there that let's become, let's, lead lives where we're modeling not seeking happiness in ways that cause suffering. You know, in our own feeble way, we can become sort of Buddhist-to-be, where we're really committed to seeking our own happiness and the happiness of others by turning toward things as they are and 
and realizing, oh my God, it's enlivening to turn toward things as they are, even when it's painful. And it's deadening to disconnect. So I'll leave it here. Uh, There's about 15 minutes left. It'd be nice to hear from people. Any thoughts you have from your practice you'd like to share with the group? And in particular, I thought, you know, it would be nice to share some of the things that I mentioned. And and we'll continue this next week in the small groups. But, for example, sharing times in your life where, for whatever reason, you did open to what was difficult and you noticed how enlivening and liberating that was. And times when you noticed other people opening to what was challenging. You know, you're with somebody and they're really sick and they just expressed a beautiful nobility in just being with their sickness, their discomfort, in a way that just we get a contact hit high from just being around them. How enlivening it was for them as opposed to resisting their conditions. And then, of course, it'd be good to share times when we've learned the other lesson, where we resisted our suffering or the suffering of those around us and how deadening that was in the different ways that that can be deadening, how it didn't really work in the end. That's really good to share, too, to hear about. And, of course, any questions you might have. So what comes to mind? And it's nice to say your, say your names when if you decide to speak up. So what comes to mind? Yeah, Julian. <clears throat> so... We all want happiness, but somehow we're encultured in a way that, that goes against happiness. Um, why? I mean, is that because the survival instinct is stronger than the, the instinct for happiness? Or how did that actually happen? I mean, if it's too philosophical, you just let it go. But, yeah, but. Well, I think we have to realize how it happened because the interesting thing is, of course, the reality we live in happens moment to moment. So whatever happened has to be happening moment to moment right now. So it's a good question, actually. But it should be not how did it happen, but how is it happening that we choose uh, in a way that creates suffering when we want to be happy? Like the Buddha's insight, like... Because with his, you know, the power, evidently, you know, as a legend, with the power of his psychic abilities, he could in one swoop see how everybody wants exactly what I want. They want the full release of the heart, the unshakable release of the heart. And yet the choices they're making right now are exactly what lead to the heart getting bound up. And then we can see that directly in our own life. How, um, like I, I, again, I just giving an example in terms of how I interact with my wife sometimes. Where uh, I'll know like uh, how destructive it is to be cold-hearted or to be judgmental. And yet I'll do it. You know, I'll act out. I'll say, speak from that place. Yet I know it's not helping me and not helping her. And just seeing just the force of habit, the momentum of habit, the fear or the the lack of strength, basically, to uh, look instead of being swept away. So we have to practice not in sort of more provocative or, uh, you know, places in our life where there's just a lot of that momentum. We have to start where the experience is relatively simple 
and the momentum of mindfulness of that simple, relaxed presence is stronger than the other forces of habit that might be arising. And we can really see that edge and, and, and really see how this is enlivening, to, to remain present, to remain relaxed, and to allow the pain to move, which is what pain wants to do. It just wants to move. But we're afraid to feel the irritation, so we act it out. We say things out of it as if that's going to protect us from the pain of irritation or the pain of impatience or any kind of existential stress or anxiety. We keep acting it out as a way to avoid feeling what we feel. This is why sitting meditation practice is so potent. And in particular, vipassana or wisdom practice, where we're not using uh, a meditation technique which can be very skillful, which is about seclusion. So I'm not saying that these practices aren't good. They're very good because they actually allow us to do this other kind of practice. If we don't, like I said before a few moments ago, if we don't, if we can't get to a relatively safe place, we can't do this work. So we do seclusion practice or we just go to some place that feels safe and maybe that's enough. But then in that place, we don't continue to cultivate a safe place. We allow the safety to fall apart. And then we start to practice with what arises when we're not seeking a safe place anymore. Painful memories, ordinary body sensations. So we're not in a a very refined, exalted state of mind. Now we're just allowing things to be ordinary and then memories about what we need to do tomorrow, what happened yesterday come up. And then we get to practice. Are we going to resist and control or are we going to open and submit and relax? So the Buddha would answer, we do it because we don't understand what we're doing. You know, we're ignorant. If we see suffering arises because we're not seeing how it is. So ignorance is only arising because the mind doesn't see things as they are. That's really refreshing for me. I mean, just that thought for me is liberating. That the only thing in the way of liberation is seeing things as they are. Because if we really see how unproductive our habits are, we won't do them. But we really have to see that and then have faith in that, faith in what we see. Say your name again. Yeah, yeah, that's a really important point. And we can, if you're that way, like if that's your tendency, then when you notice you have compassion for others, see if you can see the reflection back onto your own life at the same time. 
oh, just as I care about this person's insecurity or this person's pain, I care about my pain. You know, just practice doing that reflection because normally, traditionally, what we do is we notice how we do have compassion for ourselves and we use that experience to go outward. But if you're, if it's easier for you to go outward, then you use it to come inward. So we start where we're, it's easy and then we move toward where it's not easy to open. Thanks, Kathy. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so that's a, the, the story that Kay or the example Kay gives is like perfect for us to just to reflect because it's easy for us because it's not so charged for us, you know, but we relate because we're human beings and we understand that kind of experience. So then you may not be able to do this now, but we can practice doing this like to reflect, like getting undone, being really angry at the person, wanting to get revenge or wanting to convince them that they should own this problem, you know, does that actually lead to the heart's unbinding? You know, is it productive of anything? And then then to go the other way, you have to, it's important to see exactly what the heart cannot accept. So what is it that the heart thinks is inappropriate? You know, like that somebody... Like, is it hard to understand why somebody could make a mistake and then not be able to uh, acknowledge it? Because I know that experience. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And you probably know that experience too. So then, and and then, boy, we know that like we can, we live in that world where people use denial as a survival mechanism. So he or she, you know, is using denial. Like, I, oh, that's not me. You must have done something to survive, like as a business, you know. And, you know, enough of the time, maybe they get away with it. And the person is so distraught by their own resentment and anger that they don't have the wherewithal to sort of negotiate some sort of bargain or whatever so that the person gets reinforced to just be in total, you know, no, it's not me, it's you. And this is the world we live in. You know, look at the politics on a national level being acted out right now. It's, it's very much that same way, this kind of absolutist uh, Russian roulette sort of thing going on. You know, who's going to really let the country fall apart? Well, let's see, you know. And, and it's like, uh, don't mess with me because I'm crazy. I mean, we, 
countries use that attitude, you know, like I've got nuclear weapons, don't mess with me because I'll use them. Even though it makes no sense to use nuclear weapons, it's been the basic strategy among the developed or the, the nations that have nuclear weapons or pretend to have nuclear weapons. I mean, who knows? So this is the world we live in. Now, the question is, that's a deep insult to the mind that wants things to be orderly. And so that's a pain. So if you can really isolate that pain, the heart's not wanting that to be true. And then just to see, well, what would happen if you actually opened to that kind of world where um, people act out these particular strategies that are so counterproductive and so destructive. It's like, uh, you know, how in different ways we, that, you know, as a nation, as a community, as families, as individuals, we use ignorance as a strategy. I mean, it makes no sense that we would actually use ignorance to get through life in a skillful way. But in so many ways, we depend on ignorance as a strategy, not knowing, like not paying attention, you know, the putting the head in the sand. And so when we see that, it breaks our heart, which is exactly what it should do. It should break our heart, and then we'll notice we're enlivened because now we don't have to work at being in denial of the way it is. We can actually be in sync, in alignment. Oh, this is really how it is. Then it doesn't surprise us anymore. And then we're much able to be more effective. We may not be able to make anything happen, but at least we're not going to do anything destructive because we don't need to. We've already made peace with this truth that the world is this way. Well, we'll have a lot more time next week to talk in small groups. So as you do the practice, Take notes if it makes sense so that you have some direct experiences like Kay mentioned tonight. It's so useful to have these real experiences to reflect on some of the teachings of the Buddha. Let's just take a few moments and let go of the words. It's nice to take a couple breaths in silence. And appreciate that this work we do together, it's really our way of not only taking care of ourselves, but it's our gift to our loved ones, the people we live with, the people we interact with, and really beyond that to a gift to the whole world. So this can be a great motivation for us to do the best we can. And thanks everyone for coming. Make sure to let me know if you didn't get an email so we can get you on the email list. And if I could see Marianne briefly before you leave and Barb Wolf. And uh, let's see, um, there's a relatively short waiting list for the Labor Day retreat. There's both an eight-day option and a four-day option. You can go to the home page and click on residential retreats for more information. Half-day retreat on the 6th. Volunteer luncheon, our annual 
meeting and volunteer luncheon for all of the ongoing volunteers, anybody who volunteers regularly at the center. Please join us for that. If you'd like to prepare a meal or a, a dish, rather, for the ongoing volunteers, you can see me or let Shelley know. There's our film night uh, this Saturday night. Jana is going to be leading that. Is she here tonight? Uh, you can look on the bulletin board what that's going to be. And Gail is teaching with Ramesh the pain workshop this Saturday afternoon. I think Nancy has a yoga workshop on Sunday afternoon. You can sign up for Any other announcements for the community before we break? Yeah. Could you say something about uh, the, the 7 to 7, 25 sit time? Yeah, I have forgotten. I meant to mention that. So for people who are new, uh, aim your arrival either at 7 or before, so you're here for the optional sit. If you come afterward, you can sit or chat outside, but don't come in until the bell rings at 7.25. Uh, that way, the people who get here early, they have that 25 minutes to, to do their practice without uh, disturbances. Great. Yeah, Nancy. I Great. Anything else? If you'd like to prepare a meal later for the Labor Day retreat, you can talk to Kim, who will be working with Dave uh, for the last part of that retreat in the kitchen, staffing the kitchen. Thanks, everyone. Have a good week of practice. Look forward to getting together again next Monday. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.